sound, lights, camera, action. There we go. How, how's everybody this morning? Wow, I think some people need to drink some coffee. I think, I think we need to have our intermission and go. go uh, I know the coffee pot was a little slow this morning. Had some power problems, and some of you desperately need some more coffee. Try that again. How, how's everybody this morning? Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. <laughs> That's good. Um, welcome to uh, Ching Mai Christian Fellowship. Uh, there really is probably no place like this in the world. There's probably no church like this. Uh, it's a very special place, and you are what makes it special. Uh, as I you know, read about how you're supposed to do church, read books about what churches are supposed to be like, uh, pretty much I just throw them all away because they just absolutely do not work here. Uh, it's such a unique place. And uh, right now I know a lot of you are coming to the end of the school year, students. Some of you will be graduating. Some of you will be going home for break for the summer. Uh, some of you uh, as families will be moving and are coming down to your final days and weeks here in Chiang Mai and uh, will be moving on to other things and other ventures. Uh, some of you are uh, we'll be taking furloughs, we'll be gone for a few months to whatever, and uh, you know the reality is in about six weeks, there'll be three of us in church, <laughs> so you know one preaches, one leads music, one takes offering, it's real simple. Uh, and then, you know, people will start coming new uh, with a vision to, to minister and serve here, and with a call upon their life from God, and in all that... We together meet as a family of God, as God's children, to worship Him, to lift up and exalt His name together, to be uh, in this crazy place as much as possible, a community of people who love each other and care for each other and support each other and encourage each other. So that's kind of what we're about. This morning we're going to look uh, at a guy whose life was probably even more crazy, that of the Apostle Paul, um, and who was... In, in spite of the many varied circumstances and places and things that Paul found himself caught up in, was very clear and focused about the main driving force in his life. And if you were to describe the Apostle Paul, I think you could describe him as being a person who, was, who had a gospel-driven life. And, uh, you know, a couple of years back, very popular book, The Purpose-Driven Life, good book, great, great uh, insight and information in that book. And it is good to have a life that is single in purpose. But I would say that you can have a life that's single in purpose and still not really be it if that purpose isn't the gospel. That's kind of the theme of our message this morning, having a gospel-driven life. And uh, Paul sums up his, his teaching in this passage by saying, I have become all things to everybody so that by all means I might save some. And that's what we want to look at this morning. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and let me read, starting in verse 19. Paul says, Therefore I am a free man, yet I have become a servant of everyone so that I can bring them to Christ. When I am with the Jews, I became one of them, I become one of them so that I can bring them to Christ. When I am with those who follow the Jewish laws, I do the same, even though I am not subject to the law, so that I can bring them to Christ. When I am with the Gentiles who do not have the Jewish law, I fit in with them as much as I can, 
In this way, I gain their confidence so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not discard the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I am with those who are oppressed, I share in their oppression. Or you could say, when I am with those who are weak, I share in their weakness so that I might bring them to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone so that by all means I might bring some to Christ. I do all this to spread the good news, and in doing, I also become a partner, sharing in its blessings. Remember that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize. You also must run in such a way that you will win. All athletes practice strict self-control. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run straight to the goal with purpose in every step. I am not like a boxer who misses his punches. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Let's pray as we uh, look at this word from God. Oh Jesus, we thank you that uh, you are the center of the gospel. That you are eternal life. That in you and in knowing you and in, in coming to the Father through you, we are possessors of your life. And you've called us not only to, to receive this wonderful gift, but to be daily ambassadors on a mission to take this message to the world around us. Lord, we thank you that Paul was consumed with this mission, and it's because of that we are here today. And Lord, we pray that we would also be focused on, on that mission of bringing Christ to the world. And we ask that you would teach us and speak to us this morning by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what does it mean to, be, to have a gospel-driven life? Well, Paul starts out by making a great declaration. He says, man, I am a free man. And to really understand the context of what Paul says here, you need to understand where Paul came from. As you know, Paul had been a very devout, dedicated follower of of Judaism. He had been trained as a Pharisee, and not just any Pharisee, but a very strict, the most strict sect of the Pharisees. Uh, What that meant was that he followed all 613 laws recorded in the, in the five books of the law to the detail. Uh, there were 613 laws recorded. On top of that, there were literally thousands of interpretations of those laws. And he studied these things in detail. And if you were a Jew living in that day, especially a Pharisaic, strict Jew, man, your life was miserable. Because from the time you got up in the morning until you went to bed at night, and probably even while you slept, there were countless laws regulating every move you made. When Paul came to Jesus Christ, he realized, as he teaches a lot throughout the Gospels, that he was no longer bound by all that law. Now imagine how you would have felt if you're a guy like Paul who spent your whole entire day wondering if you tithed your tithes, if you got your percentages right, you know, if you were ceremonially clean, if you actually touched something that was unclean, all day long you're dealing with this stuff, to know all of a sudden you no longer are bound and constrained by all these small, ridiculous, overwhelming laws. Was, you think he felt like a free man? Oh man, you have no idea what freedom is, you know. For Paul, he was free. 
And he realized that he no longer needed to do those things to earn his way into God's presence. That it had all been paid for through the blood of Christ. And now he just needed to go to God. He didn't have to worry about all these steps. So Paul says, man, I am a free man. And everywhere he preached the gospel, he really preaches this great message of freedom. That you no longer have to keep rules and regulations and laws to come to Christ. That God has paid the price, he's opened the door, that the way to the Father is through Jesus Christ, and we enter into this relationship with him uh, without keeping all these rules. And uh, Paul, much like Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress, you know, was a man who had this huge burden lifted off of him at the cross. And for most of us, we probably have had a similar experience. We may not have been under Jewish law, but we probably carried some burden or weight of knowing that we could not get to God on our own. And that we had, in some ways, disqualified ourselves. And there is this freedom that comes of knowing that your sin's been rolled away, and you are now uh, just in God's presence. And there's great freedom in that. Uh, We are free from sin. We are free from the law, whether it's Jewish law or our own laws. And we're ultimately free from death. And Christ has purchased that kind of freedom for us. So as Paul went around to places like Corinth, he preached this message. And he preached as a guy who was free. And he made the gospel a free gift. Uh, He made it unfettered from laws and commands and rules and regulations. Uh, Most of the stuff that religion is made up of. You know, if you want to talk about religion, religion is all about the rules and the formulas and the patterns you need to live by to somehow make God happy. But what Paul teaches and what the gospel teaches is much different than that. It's free. And there's freedom in it. And the good news is that there's grace, there's freedom... And we, this morning, have great freedom. I noticed that most of the guys are not wearing little hats. Most of the women aren't either. When I was a little kid in church, the ladies wore hats with the little veil things. It was really scary. I remember as a child being really quite frightened by that phenomenon because they never wore them except for on Sunday morning. And we don't do that, you know. Uh, there's people here in blue jeans. Can you believe it? And uh, I, don't see, I don't see a lot of ties. Do I see any, anybody got a tie? See, we're free to come to church and not wear ties. Hallelujah. Okay, I am so thankful. No uh, three-piece suits. You know, we have great freedom in Christ. And Paul taught that. Uh, unfortunately, that sometimes got misunderstood. And in Corinth, they took this freedom to a whole new level. Okay? And they got really excited about this freedom thing. And they greatly misunderstood that. And they thought what this meant was, uh, we are free to keep living the life we were before and have God. Okay? So, you know, if we were involved in wild parties in pagan temples and we were going and hanging out and, you know, uh, hanging out with our idol-worshipping buddies and eating food and drink offered to idols, well, we're free to keep doing that because we're Christians, you know, and there's freedom in that. Uh, You know, before they got saved, they were sleeping with prostitutes and having all kinds of immoral sexual activity. Hey, cool, I'm free in Christ, I can still do that, right? Wrong. Wrong, Paul says... Wrong. Hold the bus. Put on the brakes. And in uh, chapters 8 and 9 especially, and 10, uh, Paul is dealing with this issue of their kind of overgone freedom. They kind of misunderstand what freedom was. And uh, Paul is explaining that, yeah, you're free from law, but you are not free to live the life you did before. The gospel should change you. It should transform your life so that you now live differently, not according to some set of rules and regulations, but according to the new life that is in you. And so, yes, you are free, but he says you are not free to just do whatever. 
There ought to be a change in your life. And he's outlining how this should work and its implications. So he says, yeah, I praise God, I'm a free man. I am as free as it gets. I live in that freedom, I enjoy that freedom. But he goes on and he says, in in verse 9, he says, I'm free, yet I have become a slave of everyone so that I can bring them to Christ. He says, yeah, I'm a free free man, but I'm a slave. Okay, well, it's like Paul confused or what? What does he mean by that? Are you a free or, or, or are you a slave? And of course, in Roman culture, those were two actually castes or parts of society. To be a free man in Roman society was to reach the highest status in Roman culture and in the Roman world. It meant to be a Roman citizen who was free, who had rights to vote, who could buy land. Uh, if you were a slave, you were at kind of the other end of the social spectrum. Uh, you had no rights other than what your master gave you. You were a slave to your master. So Paul says, hey, I'm a free man who's a slave. And we're going, man, Paul, you're really confused. Um, and of course, by that, uh, he is, he's telling us that he is a slave for a purpose. And the idea here is that we are free to choose to live our lives in a way that advances the gospel. And uh, Paul makes it clear that this gospel message is outward focused. We are not free, uh, contrary to popular opinion, to continue living selfishly. Now, it's not that we can't do that. We can. And uh, it is our human nature to be very selfish beings. And when we first come to the Christ, we first come to the Gospel, we uh, picture that God, who loves us very much, created the whole universe for us, for us individually. And uh, He came to save us individually because He loves us. And uh, it's kind of like a newborn, you're like a three-year-old. Three-year-olds believe they're the center of the universe. And uh, pretty much they are. And uh, when we first come to Christ, we, we're kind of like that three-year-old. We get this picture that God did all this for us personally, and that's the end of it, and that the focus of it all is me. God loves me, God saves me, God took care of my sins, and so now it's all about me, and it becomes very inward-focused. But of course, there's no real joy in a life that's inward-focused. Uh, at some point, if we want to have a truly fulfilling, meaningful life, we must focus our life outward. And the reality is that no one is ever happy if they are consumed with themselves. If you don't believe me, ask, I don't know, Paris Hilton, Britney Spears. Ask them how it's working out for them to be totally consumed with themselves. A little rehab here and there, a little jail time. Uh, there's got to be joy in that, I'm guessing. Right? Uh, and yet the world teaches us that, that getting, consuming, making yourself the center is where you will be happy. But for those who have taken that to its furthest extremes are anything but happy. And that's because joy, fulfillment, purpose, meaning, life is good when it is outward focused. And so Paul says, the reality is, I am free not to be a slave to myself anymore. I am free instead to be outward focused and to live my life in a way that it is focused on bringing the gospel to other people. He says, I look out of the world and I see people around me and I know that the greatest need in their life is to come to grips with the gospel. These people are lost. Their lives are miserable. They are consumed with themselves. They're not experiencing God's joy. And these people need the truth and light of Christ. And so he says, I am free to be a slave to these people and to this message so that I might somehow bring them to Christ. Um... 
it is a paradox, and like most truth, it's the way truth is. He says, my greatest freedom comes really when I've learned to be a slave. And uh, he wants the Corinthians to get a, a, a grasp of this. Um, it's important to understand here, too, also what the gospel means. And uh, Paul doesn't define the gospel here, but he gives some clues about the scope of the gospel later in the passage. He talks about, you know, I, I become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. And notice some of the groups he talks about. He says, to the Jews, I become like a Jew. To those who follow the law, I follow the law. To those who are Gentile, lawless, don't keep the laws, I become just like them. To the weak, I become weak. And we look at this in its context. If you remember back in chapter 8, he talked about the weak. And who were the weak people? Well, they were Christians, fellow believers, who were immature in their faith and were confused about this whole question of idol meat. Uh, Most commentators and most scholars believe that he is referring here to those people. Um, What is the gospel? Uh, He says, I take the gospel to, to basically all these people. What does he mean by that? Well, I believe the gospel is this. It is ultimately to bring people to love and enjoy God through the message of redemption, the cross, the cross of Christ. Um, Where does the gospel start? Well, the gospel really starts in Genesis with the creator God of the universe who created Adam and Eve to love and enjoy him. That's the start of the gospel. And of course, we know that Adam and Eve made some really bad choices And instead of loving and enjoying God, they came up with their own plan of happiness. And uh, it had to do with kind of a change of diet and some other things that didn't go so well. And they, instead of loving and enjoying and worshiping God and enjoying His presence, they chose their own path. And the consequence and the end result of that is that they began to worship what God created. They began to serve what God made. They became selfish and consumed with themselves. And we call that sin. Um, of course Jesus God, God the Father still loves us and it was his plan to restore us not just to take away sin but to restore us to that place where we would still love and enjoy him to return us to the Garden of Eden so to speak and so Jesus came and through his death on the cross he removed the things from our life the sin and the death the bondage to the law the bondage to our own self so that we could be free, not just to be free from sin, but to love and enjoy God. Uh, Paul says, I live my life in a way so I can bring people back to that place of living in a state of loving and enjoying God fully. Because that's the gospel he was committed to. And he says, uh, short and simple, he says, my life is gospel-driven. Everything about my life I have become all things. I do all things. I make every decision. I make every plan. So that by all means, by all these means of of word and deed and activity and travel and ministry, I might bring as many as possible to Christ. Uh, Point two, he says, he says that. He says, I want to win as many as possible. I don't want to just save a few people. I want to save as many as possible. When I first got saved, I went to this church that was really into soul winning. And uh, it was pretty militant and pretty extreme. And it basically was all about keeping score. And I mean, these people, no kidding, these people would keep score of like victims. 
the people they had knocked off for the gospel. And uh, uh, they were very enthusiastic about it, and uh, they used mostly guilt to motivate people into it, uh, which is a great motivator. And uh, so for a long time, I, I was really determined to be a good soul winner, which basically meant like assaulting people with the Bible in large tracts. And... Uh, and getting them to pray some prayer, and then running away as fast as possible. And uh, we did that. Uh, and I thought, at that time in my life, I thought, you know, if I can, you know, I'm saved, and so if I could lead one person to Christ, then, then God and I are even. You know, it's like, we're even. You save me, I'll save one more, we're good. Okay, and I'll be done. Um, and, you know, you kind of have that mentality, you're trying to keep score. Uh, you know, that, that's not what Paul's talking about here. But Paul is talking about casting as wide a net as possible because he saw that every human being needs the gospel of Christ. And so Paul wanted to reach out to as many people as possible. That means he saw every person he came into contact with as a person that he had the opportunity to in some way share Christ. Now does that mean Paul went around you know, sharing the gospel, the four spiritual laws, or you know, getting into some deep theological conversation with every person he met? Probably not. But it means that he saw every person, every contact, every relationship, every person he passed as somebody he, he saw as a mission field for the gospel of Christ. Secondly, when he says he wants to win as many people as possible, it really means not only reaching numbers, but it means reaching every people group. Every different people group. And uh, Paul traveled through many different cities, many different parts of the Roman Empire, uh, the known world of that day. And he didn't go only to Jews. He didn't go to only people who thought and, and believed like he did. He went far beyond that. He went to Gentiles, he went to Romans, he went to Greeks, he went to slaves, he went to free men. Paul went to every possible ethnic group and language group that he encountered. Um, of course, in Thailand and in this region, there are all kinds of ethnic groups. Thai, Lahu, Akha, Mong, Lisu, Shan. I'm, I'm missing some, I know. Give me some more. I don't know. There's lots of them. They all need Christ. And part of the gospel message is that, that in every tongue and tribe and nation, there would be those who worship Him, who exalt the name of Jesus. And Paul understood that vision. Uh, it also means going to every various cultures and religious groups. So we go to, to Buddhists. We go to Muslims. We even go to Baptists and Presbyterians. Because they all need to be saved. Okay, we'll talk more about that in a minute. Okay, for all of you Baptists, just hang on. We have an altar call. Um, we go to different lifestyles. Okay, God calls us to look at many different lifestyles. Business people, moms of toddlers, um, school teachers. God calls us to take the gospel to lady boys who play volleyball. Okay? He needs to save them too. Um, he calls us to go to street kids or lesbians or drug addicts. God wants to save rural farmers as well as inner city taxi drivers. He wants to save poor kids. He wants to save college students. He wants to save um, married people, single people, you know, monks who are committed to celibacy for life. Uh, each of those are groups of people that need the gospel. And when Paul talks about taking it there, he's talking about putting it in a shape and a form that each group 
can receive. And we'll talk about that in a minute as well. Uh, finally, he talks about reaching the saved and the unsaved. Now, a lot of you think, well, how can you do that? How do you save, save people with the gospel? If they're saved, how do you save them again? Well, again, we need to understand what Paul means when he talks about the gospel. Um, as I said, he talks about reaching out to the Jews, the Gentiles, and the weak. Uh, he, he, in his letters, does not write only to the unsaved and the lost. He spends actually most of his time teaching and communicating with the saved. Uh, in all that, I believe Paul saw himself communicating the gospel. Uh, I think we've made a mistake in our thinking in looking at the gospel as something we give to unsaved people and once they get, once they get saved, they no longer need the gospel because now they're Christians. Okay? That's crazy thinking. Okay? If you think that through logically, there's real problems with it. Do you need the gospel? How many of you need the gospel? Well, are you all unsaved? What's wrong with you? Well, we need the gospel as saved people, don't we? We need it every day of our life. We need his saving redemption in every day and in every area of our life. Uh, you could picture it this way. Uh, we talk about the gospel being a lifeline. And you know, like we're on this big gospel ship, right? And there's lost people floating, bobbing up and down in the ocean about to drown. And the gospel is this great lifeline that we throw out to them. And it's true that the gospel is that. It is a lifeline that we give to those who are sinking, uh, who are about to drown in their own sin and death. And we they grab the lifeline, we reel them in, we get them on the boat. Uh, and for a lot of us, that's where the gospel starts. But think about this. Here's some people who have been in the ocean, they're freezing, they're soaking wet, they've been there for days without food, they're sunburned, they're parched, they're on the verge of death. We get them on the boat, we shove them off on the, on the deck, we kind of kick them down at the end of the banister, and we leave them in a crumpled pile of, of wet, soggy, starving humanity. We say, there you're saved, hallelujah, praise God. And we go fishing again for more people. And they sit huddled, shivering on the deck of the boat. They don't know where they are, and they don't know if they're lost or saved. Okay, they, they're thinking maybe they were better back in the ocean. Was well, that what we're supposed to do? Of course not. Uh, if you were to rescue somebody out of the ocean, once you got them on the deck, you would dry them off. You may to give them some first aid or CPR. You want to, if they're, if they got hypothermia, you want to warm them up. You don't want to take them below deck and get them some, some good clothes and a, a warm place to stay. And ultimately on this ship, you would want to get them to the place where you could invite them to dinner, where they could sit down with the captain of the ship. Because it's not about being on the boat, it's not about just being out of the water. But what we say people to is to sit down to dinner with the captain, who loves them, who took that ship all the way into that ocean because he wants to know them. And we really haven't completed our mission until they are sitting in the captain's presence fellowshipping and communion and dining with him, loving him and enjoying him. So where does the gospel end? Well, the gospel doesn't end when we get them on the deck. It ends when we bring them fully into a relationship with the Father and with the Son, where they are loving and enjoying him. So the gospel isn't just for the lost, although it is a huge part of it. But Paul has in mind, I believe, uh, bringing people to maturity in Christ where they fully love and enjoy all that God has. Um, another image. Um, point number three, finding the right jug. Um, 
the, the gospel is also living water. Uh, Jesus says in John chapter 14, um, if you, and this is to the woman at the well, he says, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Um, let's think about this picture of, of the gospel of salvation for a moment. Um, Jesus offers to the woman at the well um, to drink from this spring of life. And he says, once you drink of, drink of this water, he says, you will never be thirsty again. You will never be thirsty again. Um, in other words, Jesus is saying this. The gospel message is one that so satisfies the, the thirst, that so quenches the thirsty soul, that it never longs or craves for anything again. You see, the gospel isn't just dealing with our sin. The gospel is quenching our thirst. It is filling us so much with, with the fullness of God that we no longer crave and desire other things. Now, I don't know about you, but if that's what the gospel is, I need a lot of savings still. Because there's quite often that I crave and desire things other than God. When I seek to be satisfied in many things other than Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, the gospel, what I offer to you is to be so filled with my presence and my person that you find every desire in your heart satisfied in me. And that's our mission, to bring people to that place in their life where their love relationship with God, their desire for Him is at a place that, that the thirst of their soul is ultimately satisfied in Him. Well, Paul says, uh, you know, that's my mission, but he says, to do this, I have to adapt this message to fit those who I am taking it to. Let's take this picture. The gospel is living water. Water is an amazing thing in that water can be adapted to many different containers. Uh, you can put water in a jug, a barrel, a bottle, a glass cup, a wooden cup. You can deliver water in a steel canteen. I remember when I was a kid, my dad uh, was a, a construction worker, and he used to keep water in this big canvas bag. I just thought that was the weirdest thing. It was big kind of, I was wondering how it didn't leak out. And it'd hang it right on the very front of his truck by the radiator. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. I think back now, I think they actually drank that stuff. I don't know, it doesn't sound very healthy. but You can put water in anything, uh, in any shape container, any size container. Does it change the water? Well, no. The water adapts and molds to its environment. Well, I really think what Paul's talking about here is something very similar. He says, the message of the gospel is unchanging, it is the truth that Paul says in other places. You know, you don't add to this gospel. You don't subtract from this gospel. The message of Christ crucified and Him re resurrected for the sins of mankind, that message must never change. But Paul says here, he says, I have become all things to all people. I have changed many things in my life in order to make this gospel message effective and powerful. And I think what Paul's saying is, you know, when I go into an environment or a situation, I have to think about what kind of container I'm going to put this message in. 
says, if I'm going to a Jewish place, I want a Jewish cup. You know, I want a cup that's going to fit Jewish culture. He says, when I go to be with the Jews, I become like a Jew. I follow their customs. I dress like them. I sing their crazy Jewish songs, you know. I go to their Jewish karaoke bars and do the goofy dances, you know. So when I'm with Jews, I do what Jews do. Why? So that I can gain them, so that I can win them to Christ. Right? He says, to those under the law, I become like one under the law. He says, I take a cup that's kosher. You know, I go with a cup that's been washed 10,000 times and boiled and sterilized so it's clean. Right? And he says, I take a cup that follows the law. Now this is probably a difficult thing for Paul to do. Because he had been saved out of that. And I'm sure to go back to that was a bit creepy for him. But he said, no problem. If I'm going to those who are under the law, I go under the law. And we know that several times in Acts and in in his letters, he writes about doing things, uh, keeping and fulfilling the Old Testament law. Did he have to do that? He says, no, I'm not bound by that. He says, I'm only bound by the law of Christ. But I choose to adapt that lifestyle if that's who I'm taking the gospel to. Why? So I might win them. So I may gain a hearing among them for the gospel's sake. Uh, He says, to those who are without law, to the Gentiles, I become lawless. Uh, Some people kind of have a hard time with this. Does it mean that Paul, you know, like, you know, went to strip clubs and, you know, gay bars? Well, he may have, but he he didn't become gay, okay? Uh, He had boundaries, and he said, I have limits. I still follow the law of Christ. But did it mean that when he was uh, going to the Gentiles, he adopted his Jewish lifestyle. No. He says, when I went to the Gentiles, I was a Gentile. I can see him going into Corinth, you know, chief Greek Roman city, Roman culture, you know, wearing his toga, his little little wreath on his head. Um, You know, he adopted their lifestyle. He talked about the things they went to. He hung out in the places where they lived. If you were in Corinth and you wanted to go hang out in a public place, do you know where you went? Well, they either went to the pagan temples, which was one option, or they went to the bath, you know? Paul, I, Paul, I can picture Paul spending a lot of time taking public baths, hanging out, you know, not all the clothes on in the water, sharing Christ, right? Because he could adapt his life, he could adapt his life so that it could carry this valuable, precious water so he could deliver it to those uh, who were in need of him, uh, in need of its message. Um, he learned to talk about the things that were of interest to them. He learned how to connect with people where they were. Uh, in a word, he learned how to relate to people who were different than him. Now the reality is, for most of us, we can relate easily with people who are like us. The problem is, most of us are Christians who have really created, and part of the way it works, we end up in this kind of Christian subculture. And, you know, we don't need to do a lot of evangelism among Christians, except for those Baptists. Okay, we've got to work on them. Um, seriously, we don't need a lot of evangelism within people who are like us, especially in Chiang Mai. You know, if they're like us, they are us. All right? Uh, if they're different, they're, they're not us, and they need the gospel. So, Paul says, I have learned to relate not only to my own people, but I have learned how to connect with people who are vastly different from me. 
we probably can't appreciate the gap between a Pharisaic Jew and a Gentile in, in, in Roman Corinth. Okay, that is a huge gulf. And Paul said, I have learned to make that, that, that step in order to win people to Christ. Okay, in order to be an effective witness for the gospel of Christ. Um, we need to learn how, basically what Paul's saying here, is we need to learn how to connect with people who are much different than us. Um, when I was pastoring in the States, for me it meant, uh, you know, I, I, the church that I planted there was in a very rural farming community where a lot of people uh, raised cows and, and, and baled hay. So when I first went there, I spent several summers as a pastor uh, putting up thousands of bales of hay out in the hot sun, uh, tossing these bales of hay. And the very first person we saw come to Christ there was an 80-year-old cattle rancher. And as a result of that, uh, most of his wife and a number of his kids came to Christ. I preached his funeral and I preached some of their other funerals. And uh, they came to Christ because, not because I was a great Bible scholar, not because I was this preacher, but because I was willing to go out and and throw hay. Um, uh, On a more fun note... Uh, a group of high school teachers there every Thursday night, Thursday afternoon would go golf. Oh man, I love that assignment. So I got, I would play golf with those guys, and uh, they would harass me and make fun of my golf, like everybody does, because I'm such a bad golfer. Uh, but it was a way to extend Christ to those people. Um, uh, yeah, I'm going down the list. I mean, it was a place where everybody there hunted and fished. Also, a very difficult situation, sacrificing for Jesus out fly fishing. Uh, another guy who came to Christ was a young man, uh, newly married, uh, loved to fly fish, and uh, he was fishing for fish. Man, I was fishing for Jesus, and I caught that guy for Christ. And uh, today, to this day, he, they pray for us, they support us, they are very interested in our life and ministry because I was willing, a you know, sacrifice as it was, to go fly fishing for Jesus. Um, you know, it means finding ways to connect with people, to, to find the things that they are interested in, to go where they go and to do the things they do. And you know, some of the things they do are pretty rough and crude and obnoxious and, and not always godly. For us, certainly not always comfortable. Uh, one of the things I, I enjoyed doing, but it was really not always comfortable, uh, I wanted to reach high school kids, so I started coaching track. Uh, we had about 60 kids on average on our track team, Lots of kids out of 60 kids, you know, 59 of them were unsaved. Beer drinking, you know, uh, pagan, filthy mouths, obnoxious high school students who I grew to love. And through that uh, ministry with those kids, many of those kids heard the gospel. And well, actually all of them did because they were a captive audience. You get them on a school bus on a way to a track meet, they have no choice but to listen. And uh, they, knew, they knew what the gospel was because I lived it out before them. That's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about winning people. And you see, uh, the church I grew up in that was so into soul winning didn't understand that in order to win people to Christ, you must first win them to yourself. And Paul was a master at this. He knew how to bend his life in order to connect with people to win them. Uh, in this passage, he uses this word, and in, in the New Living, it's translated kind of strange and weird ways. 
But over and over again, he says, I've done this to win them or to gain them. Uh, what does he mean by that? Well, he simply means, I believe that the first steps in winning people to Christ is we must first gain their friendship. We must earn their trust. We must build enough of a relationship with them that we've earned the right to be heard. They must first see Christ being lived in us. And they can't do that if we are so strange and alien to them that, that, they, that we and our life don't even make sense to them. Where our life is so irrelevant to them that we're just, we're just strange. Um, when, I remember when I was going to seminary, I, uh, to save money, I, I would ride the bus. It was about an hour's drive to school. So I, I would dri- ride this bus a long way to, to school, into the city. I had to change buses at one spot to get the last little leg to school. One day I'm standing out at this bus stop. There's about 15 people there waiting for this bus. And I noticed this one guy's got this like 900-pound King James Bible. And I thought, man, he must be a Christian. Well, pretty soon he starts making clear to everybody that he's a Christian. And I mean, this guy was like borderline insane. And uh, he was just a lunatic, a Bible lunatic. And he starts like preaching to everybody. And he's like cornering people. You know, you're going to hell. You need to get saved. Want me to tell you about the Bible? And it's like people are just backing away from this guy. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, kind of the message is, you know, I'm a half-crazed lunatic who's out of my mind. Would you like to be like me? I can tell you how. And boy, people were lining up, you know. They were just going, oh, please sign me up. Um, and, you know, needless to say, nobody got saved that day. And everybody was really glad when the bus got there. Right? <laughs> Well, sadly, that's what um, a lot of people, even though we may not be that off the wall or bizarre, the truth is, if our life in no way connects with theirs, in no way, there's no, there's no common ground. If we have become so separated out from the world and so unique that they think we're just weird, uh, it's really hard to communicate the gospel to them. Paul says, you know, at some point you want to have a holy life, you want to serve God, you want to love God, but don't become weird. Be normal. You know? And normal is defined by the place where you are. Uh, if, you're in, you know, if you're in Louisiana, I mean, it's going to be a lot different than if you're in, in, uh, you know, in London. Okay? It's going to be different what normal is. Right? Or if you're in, in uh, China, or if you're in India, you know, what's normal is going to be very very different. And so we've got to learn how to adapt our life and uh, give up some of what makes us comfortable and safe to fit in with those who don't know Christ. That's what Paul's saying here. Um, he's saying, bottom line, he's saying we need to find thirsty people. Um, people read this passages like this and uh, people talk about making your life fit in with culture. And a lot of people get very nervous and scared about that. Uh, as I said, I went to this church that was very separated, that it kind of assaulted people with the Bible. And their whole approach was to be as different as possible. Whatever culture was, their goal was to be the opposite of it. Right? Sad thing, most, most people on the outside confused us with, Mormon, with Mormons. Because okay? that's mostly what we look like. Um, and if... If our focus is, and, and please understand me, we must keep the gospel true. But the problem is, for some people, they're so con, con, 
concerned about keeping the gospel message pure that they've made it totally unavailable for those who need it most. They, they're so concerned with, with the accuracy of its message and keeping it doctrinally pure and working out all the subtle theological nuances of the gospel that they've made it absolutely unaccessible to people who need it. Uh, kind of the strategy is, you know, we have the gospel, we have perfected it, we have defined it in its utmost detail, and if you want it, you've got to come to church to get it. And uh, people go to church and they have no idea what's going on. It makes no sense to them. You might as well be speaking Greek because that's about as much as they understand. And we have made the gospel inaccessible, unnecessarily, to those who desperately need it. That's one wrong extreme. Uh, But there's another wrong extreme, and that's those who are too focused on the cup. You know, they're all about the culture. They're all about you know, fitting in. Fitting in to the extent that they fit in too well. And that was part of what was going on in Corinth. Paul's going, you know, you guys fit in great, a little too well. Okay? Um, and, and they have become so focused on the cup, on, on fitting it into culture, shaping it to culture, uh, caring for the needs of culture, caring for the needs of the, the homeless and the poor, that the cup's empty. It's a great cup. A great cup, but it's an empty cup because they forgot to fill it with the life-giving message of Christ. Okay, obviously those are two extremes that we must avoid. And one way to do that, I believe, is that we need to just focus on thirsty people. The problem with the Corinthians, bottom line, is that they didn't really love the lost. Uh, the same thing can be true for many believers. They love the gospel, they love how God has saved them, they love being a Christian, but they don't really love lost people. And so they're not concerned about people who are desperately thirsty for the drink of life. And they're unwilling to bend their life. They're unwilling to go in places that quite honestly would make them uncomfortable or worse yet that might be, bring great criticism from others. Now here's the test. Uh, how many times if we were to go say to a bar or worse yet to a gay bar or if we were to be seen talking to a guitar on the street and you know, some other Christian walked by and saw you, would judge you and criticize you because you're compromising your Christian life. He said that's a sign that we no longer really love people. And Paul says, look, I love people so much and I am so burdened by the gospel that they must hear that I see these thirsty people and I become all things to all people that by all means, I might say some. And Paul says we've got to love people. Love them enough to bend our life to theirs so that they can get a life-giving drink of the gospel. Um, He finishes with this challenge. And it's real important to see this passage in the context of this chapter. He says these final words. He says, I do, I do all this to spread the good news and in so doing I become a partner with it and I enjoy its blessing. Remember that in, in a race everyone runs but only one person gets the prize. You also must run in such a way that you will win. All athletes practice strict self-control. They do it to win a, a prize that will fade away but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run straight to the goal with, the purpose in every, with purpose in every step. 
I am not like a boxer who misses his punches. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Um, I must confess. I have a confession to make. Uh, at times in my life, I have mispreached really this passage because I took it out of context. And, you know, it's great to preach messages about, you know, living a really dedicated life and training well, and those are not necessarily bad things. But it kind of misses the, the mark of what Paul is saying here. Uh, the context here, Paul is talking about his mission to preach the gospel, to be a gospel-driven person. And he, um, you know, he says, I fear that after preaching to us, I might be disqualified. I've heard people preach crazy stuff about losing our salvation. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about someone who is a partner with the gospel. And if I'm not careful and dedicated and disciplined, I could become disqualified as a partner of the gospel. What does he mean by that? Well, he says, first of all, in verse 23, he says that, he says, I do all this, I bend my life to become uh, a partner with the gospel. The idea there is that we become a fellow partaker of the gospel as we share it. The gospel is a wonderful thing, and it's an amazing thing, it's life. But God didn't just send it in capsule form. He sent it through, hand-delivered by his children. And the amazing thing is that when we take the gospel, when we share Christ, when we do anything to uh, bring its fruit, uh, teaching Sunday school, encouraging a neighbor, living the life before unsaved people, just smiling, you know, the person at the cash register who kind of messes up and doesn't give you the right change, you know, biting their head off is not being a witness. Okay, smiling, being patient, showing Christ's kindness, that, that could be a witness, okay, that could be a way to preach the gospel. Paul says when you do those things, you share as a partner in its blessing. What does that mean? It's interesting, in this passage, Paul talks, he says, I do this so that I might save them. Um, now I've been told many times, you know, you're not supposed to say that because we don't save anybody. Only God does. But actually, Paul would argue with that. Paul would say, it's true God saves them. It's true that the gospel saves them. But God and the gospel doesn't, don't really save anybody by themselves. God chooses to use people. And when God, along with the, the gospel message, are delivered by us, the three of us become a team that are responsible for saving people. The reality is, you and I do have a part in saving people. We don't do it single-handed, but we have a share in it. And as a result, we will share for eternity its reward. Someday, if you have lived your life in a way that's been an effective witness, that has in some way communicated this gospel, when you get to heaven, you will see the fruit of your life. There will be people who, uh, through your life, or partly through your life, have come to Christ or who have had their marriages saved, or who have grown to a fuller knowledge of loving and enjoying God. And they will in eternity be the fruit of your life. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, I want my life for all eternity to be surrounded by lots of people that I had a part in bringing to Christ. You might say, well, that sounds terribly selfish and self-centered. And I thought we weren't supposed to be inward-centered. I thought we were supposed to be outward-centered. Here it comes down to it, Paul's just being totally selfish. Well, to a degree he is. 
But interestingly, uh, notice what he says in verse 24. He says, remember that in every that everyone runs, but in a race, only one person gets the prize. You should run to win. Paul commands, he says, don't run to lose. Run to win. What's he saying there? He's saying, it's okay. In fact, it is commanded. It is the right thing to run for the prize. It is, it's, it's really foolish not to. Okay, how many of you go out and run in a race and hope to lose? Well, I did because I knew I was really bad, but... Um, but I wanted to win. I didn't train to lose. Okay, now I'm training to lose. I eat a lot. I don't exercise much. I'm pretty much training to lose. But when I was competing and running, I didn't train to lose. I trained to win. I trained to improve. Paul says, don't live your life just to throw it away. Don't live your life as if the reward doesn't matter. He says, for me, the reward matters. He said, people go in a race to win. They don't run just to look good. Uh, you know, they run to win. He says, don't live life as if there is no reward, because there is a reward. And that reward is, is the share we take in the gospel. He said that the bottom line is that every day of our life, we have an opportunity to move people closer to Christ. And every day that we do that and to every effort we, we find success in that, we will enjoy the benefit of that for all eternity. Okay, how many of you want a reward? Anybody? I want that reward. I don't want to get to, I mean, it's going to be great getting to heaven, but you know, I want to have a reward there too. And Paul says that is a good goal. He says, don't be a boxer who's out there just punching the air. He says, punch with aim. He says, don't run, just go out there running aimlessly. He says, run to win. Run with purpose in your life. He says, there's no purpose that will have an eternal reward other than a life that is gospel-driven. A life that is imparting Christ to others. Um, he says, so in the end, I, I buffet my body and I make it my slave so that it will do what I want. Uh, what is, what is one of the greatest and overlooked tools of evangelism? Um, you know, there are many great tools out there, ways to share Christ, ways to present Christ. There's good tools, there's tracks, there's, you know, the ABC method, there's the Romans Road, there's great tools for the gospel. Of course, there's your Bible, great tool for the gospel. Uh, there's one tool, though, that I believe is often greatly overlooked, and Paul talks about it here. Uh, it's interesting in this passage, he doesn't really talk about the Bible, he doesn't talk about preaching, he doesn't talk about, you know, uh, giving out tracts. Notice what he says here, he says, I buffet my body, I discipline my body. Literally means I, I punch myself in the face, okay? I beat myself up so that I will acquire the kind of discipline that it takes to win. Uh, in those days, as today, uh, athletes would, would, would go on strict diets. They would follow strict reg regimens of exercise. They would discipline themselves. They would deny um, things that would keep them from being effective as an athlete. Paul says, I do the same thing. Why? So that my body will do what I want it to. So one of the greatest tools for evangelism is this body, such as it is. You know? It is one of the most powerful and effective tools for evangelism in our world. And the reason is this. 
long before a person ever will listen to the message of Christ, they must see it being lived out in real life. And the only way they do that is through this body, such as it is. Okay? This is the gospel that goes out into the street and that people encounter. Okay? Paul says, I discipline myself, I, I put restrictions on my life, I limit my freedom, I direct my freedom so that this body will be a, a lighthouse for Christ. The cool thing is, you know, we think about evangelism, we think about being gospel-driven, that we have to like be Billy Graham and have crusades and stand up and preach the gospel to tens of thousands of people, or be, you know, the Bible lunatic who's going out, you know, giving tracts to all the waitresses at wet restaurants and, like, you know, preaching to people on airplanes. And, you know, if God gives you opportunities to share Christ, that's great. If you can strike up a conversation, you can share Christ. Wonderful. However, just as important, and often maybe more important, is just how we live our life. You know, Jesus told his disciples, love one another, and by this, the world will know that you are my disciples. You know, one of the most powerful witnesses, if you're married, one of the most powerful and effective witnesses you have is just loving your spouse. It's just having a love relationship with your husband or wife. Or if, you have, if you're a parent, is, is showing and, and, and dealing with your children in the way Jesus would. In Thai culture, that's a huge... In Asian culture, that is a huge thing. When they see us just loving our children and, and being patient and gentle and caring with our children, we are witnessing the gospel to them. Uh, you know, they know that we're all kind of weird and different and they see us, we kind of stand out here. Um, you know, and they know that there's like two groups. There's these crazy Christian people, missionaries, and they're like backpackers. And we look a lot different, so they can pretty well tell the difference. Um, and so they know who we are. And they watch us. They watch how you drive. Do you drive like a missionary? Or you drive like a kamikaze? Okay? Okay? If, like, you're running over motorcycles, it's really a bad witness. Okay? They really, it doesn't draw them to Christ when you just ran them over. Okay? Or when you ran them off the road. Uh, you know... Uh, for a while, driving, I started driving like Thai people, which is not Christian, <laughs> okay, at all. Um, and I started getting convicted about it. I thought, you know, I have a witness in actually like letting people in, you know, uh, when they're trying to get off of a busy side street and can't get in, you stop and let them, and then they look at you, you know, you stop, or like you let people cross the street, and they look at you like, what's wrong with you? You're letting me cross, you know, and they're, they smile and they go, wow, these people are nice. Well, that's being a witness for Christ. The way we live our life. The way we interact with them. In big ways and in small. We are a lighthouse. We are the, as Jesus said, I am the visible representation of the Father. In many ways, we are the visible representation of Christ on earth. Okay? You don't have to be a great evangelist. But you can let Christ shine through every part of your life. And you can be a witness. And in doing that, you move people closer to the gospel. And you don't know down the road where some Thai person comes to Christ because this crazy you know, missionary was nice to them and let them cross the street and didn't actually run them over. And they were so moved by that that they thought, you know, I want to find out about these Christian people. Or they see a marriage that you know, people actually love each other and they've been married for a long time and they're faithful to each other. 
And they know in their own culture that doesn't happen. And they want to know what's wrong with these people that they actually love each other for so long. And they start searching for Christ. Um, Paul says, I have become all things to all people so that by all these means, by every means possible, God might save some. I might save some. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you have called us to this amazing mission to become partners of the gospel. Uh, Paul said that the gospel is the power of God into salvation and you have invited to be partners with that great and amazing power. Um, and Lord, we, uh, we want to be faithful in, in delivering that message. Lord, help us to be willing to go to places that for us may not be very comfortable, that may even bring criticism from other believers. Uh, But because we love people so much, we commit ourselves to that end. Um, Lord, thank you for saving us. And Lord, even here in this room, we we need more saving. Uh, We confess that we need to come to a greater place of loving and enjoying you. And so we need the gospel to do its work more and more in our life uh, so that we can be a more effective witness for you. Lord, help us be a light for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.